You can open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 14, and while you're doing that, let me just share a couple things with you uh, about the week that we've just had. And first of all, let me thank those who came and prayed on Thursday night and again yesterday. Um, And also, I know there were many of you who had said that you were going to be not able to come, but you would be praying at home. And uh, there's a lot of prayer this week for these two outreach events. And I really believe that that made a tremendous difference uh, in what we saw, and we really sensed God moving. I really believe it started uh, right here in this auditorium in chapel on Thursday, uh, as Tom Coverley uh, did a few illusion tricks for our junior high and high school. Uh, First, he did it in the elementary, but then in the afternoon when he did it for our high school, uh, challenged the kids to to live for Christ, and at the end of that service gave opportunity for uh, kids to pray, and uh, it was tremendous. Kids all over the place on their knees praying and getting things right, and what a great service it was here on Thursday afternoon. And then Thursday night, I'm not sure how many people, there were a lot of people that prayed verbally. I did get at least one card of a lady who, who wrote on that card that tonight I committed my life to Christ, but I believe that many prayed and, and asked, uh, asked Christ. Last night at the Sportsman's Banquet, Eric reported to me uh, in the cards that we got back, two people said that they made professions of faith for the first time, accepted Christ. Forty-six people on the commitment card said they recommitted their life to Christ, and five people requested church information. So just a great, great time. And so thank you. Thank you for praying, church, uh, this week. I, I just want to thank uh, I, I want to thank the Normans for the great job that they did on and getting things ready for the upward celebration and for this season. And then I want to thank uh, all of the men who worked so hard uh, for the sportsmen's banquet last night. I had one of the men tell me as I was just walking around. He said he was so impressed with all the mounts and all the fish and the bear and the, all the things that were there. He said I've never seen it done so well as it was done this year. So just you men who work so hard, let me just say thank you. Thank you for all of your effort that you put into that event. Uh, done first class, really, guys. So thank you. Thank you from my heart for all of your work. I also want to mention to you this morning that last night, very suddenly, Sam Parent, Sam Parent went home to be with the Lord. Um, so I got a call from Joan during the, the banquet, and we talked, and she had told me her dad was being transported to the hospital, and then she called me again about 5.30 or quarter of 6 and said that uh, he was in critical condition, but the doctor thought that he would make it, uh, didn't see why he wouldn't make it, and, uh, and then I went to the hospital immediately after the event, and when I got there, he had already passed away. And so really be praying for Joan. You know, her mom passed away just several years ago, and uh, it's very difficult for her. So I want to encourage you to do that. In fact, we'll stop and pray right now for Joan uh, Parrott this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know where Sam is. We know the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And last night, very suddenly, Lord, without expecting it, Sam went home to be with you. Father, thank you for Sam's life. Thank you for, uh, Lord, his love for you. Lord, I pray that you might minister in a great way to Joan. Uh, Father, as being uh, the only child who's still left, uh, Lord, and not married, certainly this is a very difficult thing for her to go through by herself. And, 
Father, I want to pray that you give her great grace and mercy and encouragement uh, in these days to come as she has to work out all the details. And uh, Father, we, we just pray that she might really sense the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I thank you for Sam. Thank you, Lord. He's been a long-term mem- time member here at Mount Calvary Church. And uh, Lord, we just pray, um, even for his funeral, that through his home going, that maybe there would be some, uh, Lord, of people that he was friends with and those that he knew from Masonic Village, Father, that maybe would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we commit that to you. And Lord, right now, as we open the word and we challenge ourselves and we prepare ourselves for communion, may your precious Holy Spirit have the freedom to speak to our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning will be a little bit different. We're going to do a two-part message, and uh, the first will be gearing towards communion, which we'll do, and then we'll sing, and then we'll come back with a uh, second part to this message this morning. But today we begin a series, an Easter series, called What a Difference a Day Makes. And uh, over these next uh, two weeks, uh, or three weeks, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper, the la- what happened at the Last Supper next week. We're going to look at uh, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we're going to look at the courtyard uh, of Jesus' trial. And then, of course, it'll be Easter Sunday, and we'll talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So that's our series. Uh, but today, we sort of want to look at this Last Supper. So I call your attention here to um, Mark chapter 14, and I'm going to read to you this portion of Scripture, starting with verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread... When it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparation for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found the things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the mountain of olives. So let's talk about the setting this morning of this text. 
And so we go back to verse 1 to get the setting. It says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So we know that this takes place in one of the feasts of Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, when God had delivered the Egyptians, or when God had delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians, all the way back in the Old Testament, the Egyptians or the Israelites left so quickly that they didn't have time to make fresh bread. And uh, so they left. And uh, they normally would have included leaven, but they, they cooked the bread so quick, actually, that they didn't put leaven in it. And so it, the leaven became a symbolic of the Israel's old life in Egypt. And so God then established this in um, the book uh, to the Hebrews to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says in Exodus chapter 13, verses 3 through 7, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters." So he said, for the next seven days, you're not going to eat any unleavened bread. At the beginning of Passover, which was part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he said, for these next seven days, you will not partake of bread that has leaven in it. And then as we get into the Old Testament, our New Testament, we realize that the leaven began to represent sin and cleaning out. And so what they would do, what the Israelites would do is they were preparing, is they would do like a spring cleaning. They would go through their house and clean everything and make sure all of the leaven was out of the house as before they started this feast of unleavened bread. And this is a picture really of what we need to do even as we come to the communion table, is we need to make sure as we come that we've dealt with sin, that as we partake of the communion table this morning, that our heart is pure, that our hands are clean before God, as it says in Psalms, that we can lift holy hands, hands that are right. And so there's this sense of us making sure that we're right. An exciting thing is that really Christ became the fulfillment of the feast of unleavened bread. Listen, as we read John 6, 32 through 35, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is in him who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who comes to who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus came perfect without sin. Died on the cross for our sins, as we're going to talk about as we do the communion table this morning. He was the fulfillment of the feast of unleavened bread because he was the man, the God-man without sin, who took our sin upon him. And so that's the setting for this, this feast. And then we see the preparation that takes place here. 
So Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go into the city and I want you to look for a man who will be carrying a jar of water. Now, let me tell you, that would have been very unusual because in that time, usually the women would carry the water in jars and the men would carry waters or they would carry water, not in jars, but in wine and in, in, uh, sacks, not in jars. So it made it really easy for his disciples to be able to pick out this man carrying a jar of water because that wasn't the custom uh, at all. Some people say that this part where the, this um, Passover meal took place uh, was in a Hasidic Jewish part of the city of Jerusalem where there wouldn't have been women anyway. It just would have been a, an area where only men were, and so that's why the man was carrying the jar. But so the disciples came into the city, just as Jesus says, and they saw this man carrying a jar. And Jesus said, follow him to where he is. He, when he gets there, that's his master's house. Tell the master that the teacher has sent you and that he wants to use your room for the Passover meal. And so that's what happens in this portion of Scripture. Exactly what Jesus said. He knew this is what would happen. Exactly what happened as the disciples went into the city. Now... We know once they got there and got into the city, uh, they went to the upper room. And then I I want you to look at at something here in the scripture. As they came into the upper room, um, they got to the table. And the Bible talks about them in verse 17. It says, when the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve while they were what? Reclining. So I have a couple pictures I want to show you this morning. And uh, the first one is this. That's the great famous what? Yeah, The Last Supper, painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Great painting, but that's not how it looked at all, okay? That's what we think, but that's not at all what the upper room would have looked like that night. It wasn't them sitting in a long table like that. Uh, In fact, the Bible says they were what? Reclining. So here's the next picture. And again, this is just an artist's rendering of what it could have looked like. But this is probably more realistic than da Vinci's painting. Uh, They were reclining. Talks about one of the disciples laying over on Jesus' bosom. Would have been hard to do that. Think of sitting at a table with somebody and trying to lay over on the bosom. You wouldn't have been able to do that. But you're reclining. When you're laying back, it's very easy to roll over and lay over on somebody's chest. I think that John did that. And so this is what this would have looked like that at, the up, at the Last Supper, not Da Vinci's. So I just wanted to point that out to you because I wanted to sort of, for you to get that picture in your mind. Is this Whether it was a long table or a round table, I'm not sure what the table was. But we do know that was the custom of that time that they would be reclining around the table. And uh, I know for our family, it's always neat. One of the things that we always did every Easter was we reenacted the Last Supper. And uh, we had a real low table, and all of our kids would go to their bedrooms, get their pillows, and they would bring them out to that table, and we would lay around the table, and we would do communion together. And we did that for years. Even when our kids were teenagers, we reenacted the Last Supper, laying around the coffee table, you know, talking and eating and celebrating. And uh, so that's really what it looked like at that last supper. But notice here something else in verse 17. He says, I tell you the truth, 
What's this next word? I tell you the truth, what? One of you will betray me. One who is eating. So we have what we call the setting, and then we have what I call the scandal. The scandal. And and two parts of the scandal. First of all, that one of the disciples are going to betray him. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say, and Judas is going to betray me. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. They were saddened. It says in verse 19, and one by one they said what? Surely not I. It's not I, Lord. I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I, I won't do that, Lord. And so by one by one, they must have been searching their own hearts. And I think there's a reason here, again, that Jesus says this, one of you are going to betray me, because it, what did it do? It caused all of the disciples to search their heart and to make sure that they weren't going to be that one. Now, we realize that before that night is over, in a sense, all of them will turn their back. All of them will turn their back on Christ. But at this point, he's saying, listen, they're each saying, it's it's not going to be me. It's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that. And so, in some ways, Jesus is inviting each of them to search their hearts. And you know, it's interesting because the Bible tells us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, this. A man and a woman ought to examine themselves before he does what? Before he eats of the communion table. And so, before Jesus establishes even this first communion with his disciples, if you would, he has them search their hearts to make sure that they are right. And uh, as, as we go into the scripture, we know it says, and it is one of the 12, he replied, it's one of you who are sitting here, who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, I'm not sure that that happened immediately, because I believe that all of the disciples at one time or another would have done what that evening? They would have supped with Jesus, they would have dipped at the same time he was. And so I believe that uh, that's why when, when Judas did it with Jesus, he, he dipped at the same time, and Judas leaned over and said, what you're going to do, go and do quickly, and he got up and left. It says that really none of the disciples even noticed it. Maybe they thought, well, he's the treasurer. He must be going out to deal with some of the finances or something. That wasn't unusual, so they didn't even know that it was Judas. And so, again, the text here, the text is talking about the scandal of sin. Tim Keller says this, when it comes to the understanding of our sinfulness, it's not enough to just ask, what have I done? But it is also, what am I capable of doing? If I was under certain threats, certain temptations, certain pressures, and certain opportunities, could I produce great evil under certain circumstances, which I haven't experienced yet? And the Bible says, yes. Have you ever thought to yourself what you might do in a situation where if America was ever overtaken by another government and they came in and they told us you can't worship? Or if somebody put a gun to your head and said, deny Christ or I'm going to kill you? I mean, what do you think 
What does your heart say that you want to do? Tell me. Take the gunshot. Take the gunshot, right. Doesn't our heart say that? I, what's that? That's what we would do. And that's what our heart says. But the reality, just like the disciples that night said what? Peter's going to say, and we're going to see it in the second part of our sermon, Peter's going to say what? All these other disciples might deny you, but not me. Not me. The rest of these guys might, but not me. But when it came down to it, even Peter did. He denied him. And so sometimes our heart says, listen, you know, I'm not going to do this, but the scandalous thing about sin, the sin that indwells within us, is it is alive and well. And so sometimes even our greatest greatest intentions don't come true. And so we think those things, but sometimes put under certain pressures and certain circumstances, we don't know what we would do sometimes. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, every one of you need to examine your heart. But here's the thing. He knew. He knew that all of these disciples, what they were going to do, just like he knows what we're going to do. And the, the realization, though, is this. The importance of the Lord's Supper is what does the Lord's Supper point towards? See, the Lord's Supper point towards is what? His body that was given for us, his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins so that we could be washed whiter than snow. And so in this, again, he's saying, listen, even though you're going to fail me, I want you to know there's hope. There is hope, and that hope is not in yourself. That hope is in what I'm about to do for you. That hope is in my death and in my burial and in my resurrection. And let me tell you this morning, Christian, even when we sin, even when we're scandalous in our sin, our hope for forgiveness is still in Jesus Christ. It is. There's nowhere else to go. And so he's sort of laying that out for his disciples. He's saying, listen, you guys are going to fail me. You're going to fail me. But yet, here, here's the thing. It's the scandal of grace. There's the scandal of our sin, but the scandal of grace. I love that song, that contemporary song that's out there today about how grace is scandalous. Because it really is that God loves us no matter what. And I can't comprehend it. I can't understand it. But I know this is that no matter what we do, God loves us and he forgives us. Someone once said, we have to understand both that we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but God is more faithful than we ever dare dream. We are more sinful than we can ever imagine, but God is more faithful than we ever can dream. See, it comes to that point of the reality of living in this flesh is sometimes we're going to sin, but there's the reality that Christ, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection provided for that sin. And it's just not the start of salvation, but it's all through our sanctification that we come back to the gospel, to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Let's bow our heads. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let's take a few minutes this morning. Jesus challenged his disciples. He challenged them, every one of them, to search their heart. 
And I really believe, I really believe, other than maybe Judas who sat at that table and who knew what he was going to do and who had planned it out and already had put it into action, I believe those other disciples searched their hearts. And their heart was that, God, I'm right with you. I want to be right with you. I want to do what's right. I don't want to deny you. And so that call, when he said, one of you, every one of them searched their heart. And so right now, would you search your heart? And would you say, Jesus, is there any sin in my heart that I need to confess? Would you ask the Holy Spirit that indwells you, Christian, is there any sin that I need to confess and deal with right now? As we read in Corinthians, it says, examine your heart. Would you examine your heart right now? And if Jesus, if the Holy Spirit reveals sin that you've committed and you've not dealt with, you've not confessed it and made it right, would you do that right now? Father, that first night when you instituted the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of here in just a moment, you asked a question. You made a statement in telling your disciples that one of them was going to deny you. and It caused each of them to have to search their heart. And Lord, as we come to the communion table today, Father, we need to search our hearts and make sure that we've dealt with any sin that's there. God, if, if we're sitting here today and we, we have ought against someone, Lord, we're sitting here today and we have a relationship that's broken and not right. And, and Lord, uh, Lord, maybe it would be best that, that we don't partake until we have that opportunity to go and make that relationship right. But Lord, thank you this morning that even though every one of us sin, and Lord, I don't believe that we, we want to. It's like we learned in Romans. Paul said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. And so, Lord, every one of us struggle in living this Christian life. And so, Father... Lord, you've provided a way for us to have forgiveness. You've told us there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. All of our sin is under the blood. It's been washed away. And so, Father, help us to live in that, that all we have to do is come and confess. And confession is agreeing with you that that sin has already been taken care of. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your body that was given for us. We thank you for your blood that was shed for our sin. Lord, thank you that every day, Lord, we are reminded of the gospel. It reminds us afresh and anew what you did for us. And so today, as we celebrate the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, may it be a time of celebration May it be a time, Father, realizing even though our sin is so scandalous, your grace is more scandalous. It's unbelievable, Father, and we can live in the joy of your grace. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You know, a verse we quote all the time is Romans 8.28. All things work together for good that love God and are called according to his purpose. It's an easy verse to quote, isn't it? 
But sometimes we go through things in life that we don't understand. And uh, we ask the Lord why. Well, it's great to have BJ back today for its first time. And he's going to share with you his story and what God did through this tragic, what we call a tragic accident. So I've asked him to share that. Well, <laughs> good morning. Uh, I'm not good at talking in front of all you people, so bear with me. Um, on January 27th, uh, the Lord allowed me to uh, fall through a roof. Um, I fell between 25 and 30 feet. Um, nobody saw me actually hit, but the way we think it all happened is I hit my head first, um, maybe six feet off the ground on a gate. I fell into a dairy barn um, at work. Um, you think, wow, that must have hurt. Well, I didn't. F- well, I, I felt it, but um, it knocked me out, which is actually my s- the Lord's saving saving grace. Um, my body went limp, and I landed. Um, through that, I broke my femur, my pelvis in six places, four ribs, uh, three places in my back, uh, my eye socket, and my my skull. Um, believe it or not, that was only five weeks ago. Um, so I spent ten days in the hospital. In those ten days, um, I didn't get hardly any sleep. I was in a lot of pain. But it gave me a lot of time to think. Um, and and through, through that time, I started to reflect. Um, I looked at, at my life um, and what I was doing in my life, how I reacted uh, in certain circumstances that I was in, and just my overall of my life. Um, it's really hard for me to admit this, but I came to the conclusion that I'm not saved. Um, Sorry. Uh, On that day, I just wrestled. Um, I just had a fight, and it was was Satan. He he just, he would not let me uh, get rid of my pride. So just all day long, I was just, I was wrestling with this. I had, I called my dad several times, and we just had a couple conversations, and I I didn't even fill him in into what I was fighting with until finally the last conversation that we had, I broke down, and I just started bawling. And, uh, sorry. Uh, I said, I said, Dad, I'm not saved. He said, "What? <laughs> How can that not be? I, I grew up in a Christian home. I graduated from a Christian school. How can that, you know?" And I said, "Dad, there's no way." And, and he said, "Well, you know what to do. You know, he's just the Captain Obvious back here." Uh, so, uh, on that day, which I believe was February fourth, about three o'clock in the afternoon, I broke down and I just out loud. I just prayed to God and said, save me. Amen. And I know that a lot of you have been praying for me. 
Um, I don't know how many of you knew that I did get saved, but um, you've been praying, you've been sending me cards, and you've been coming to visit me, and it's just been, you just lifted me up. And I thank you so much um, for a church that loves me. And I just thank God. I know it's just how how dumb can I be? I, I had every opportunity to get saved. My whole life, I'm 35 years old. I had a million chances. And it took it took something so awful as to fall and to have all this wrong with me to finally make me realize that I can't go through life alone. You know, I'm not strong enough to uh, to be able to do this myself. And through this whole thing, for once in my life, I have the joy of my salvation. And I really feel like it. people see it. Um, people in the hospital, people in the rehab center, they, they see it. And, and I just want, for once in my life, I feel like God has called me to do something. I don't know what it is yet, but I just, just pray for me. And, and again, I thank you for, for uh, your prayers, your cards, and uh, just everything that everybody has done for me. Thank you. Oh, God is great. I wanted you, I wanted you to have the opportunity to hear that story. And uh, we've known that for some time, but we thought it was important for him to be able to share that with you, not us. And that's why we haven't told you about that. And I know that God is using him. One of the most exciting things to me last night at the Sportsman's Banquet is before the, I was just going around greeting and meeting people and, and uh, giving my card and just talking with people. And I, I went to this table and BJ was sitting there and, and the table was full. And uh, I started talking with the guys at this table. And here there was nine guys from his work. Nine guys. I asked, I said, hey, were you, did, did you guys, you know, did, were you on the roof with him? And one of the guys said, two of the guys said, yeah, we were up there. And then one guy said, I was the first one to get to him. But because I believe what he went through, nine guys, I don't know how many of them are saved or how many aren't saved, but I know this nine guys were there last night at the sportsman's banquet sitting at his table. And so... God is. God has done something and used this in a tremendous way. So I wanted to, it's great to have BJ back, and I wanted him to be able to share that story. Well, go back with me, if you would, for a few minutes to the book of Mark, chapter 14. And I want to pick up on our story. They've sung. They took the communion table together. They sung, and then they left to make their truck up to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we'll look at next week what happens there in the garden. But I, but I want you to see on the way what happens. Verse 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. 
I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, twice you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I had to die with you, I would never disown you. And all the others said the same thing. You know, I love the Apostle Peter. You know, I've been, I've been thinking about this scripture for some weeks now, and I've been thinking about Peter, and Peter was always the disciple that would speak up, wasn't he? If Peter was alive today, Peter would be the one of the 12 disciples who was always on social media. I really believe that, because he was always talking. So I just went back through, and uh, I thought about some of the things that Peter might tweet. Here's what I came up with. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that great statement? I'm sure he would have tweeted that. Or, wash all of me. I'm sure he would have tweeted that. Or, he would have tweeted this, I won't fail. Or, he would have said this, not a good night. Hashtag failed. I thought he would have tweeted this, let's go fishing. Let's just go fishing. I thought about this. He would have tweeted this. Went swimming today. Remember when he jumped out of the boat, swam to the beach? He for sure would have tweeted that. Breakfast on the beach with Jesus. Hashtag restored. He would have tweeted this. 3,000 saved and baptized today. And then I think his last tweet might have been this. I don't know. I'm just, again, speculating. It's believed that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like the Lord was. That's what Jewish tradition tells us. And so maybe his last would have been just hashtag finished. But he was always the one who would speak out, wasn't he? And here, again, he's the one. But, you know, when I think of that, when I think of this portion of Scripture, I think of, you know, Peter, again, is like I said earlier, he is like our heart. How many times in your, in your heart have you said, listen, Lord, man, listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to do that sin again. I'm, I'm going to stand for you. I'm going to witness for you. Man, I'm going to share the gospel of Christ with that person. And then what do you do? You what? You fail. You don't do it. And the realization of living the Christian life is this. You know, we do that. Man, I'm going to pray. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to witness. I'm going to stand for Christ. And we say, we're going to do these things. And our heart is right. And I believe we do want to do those things. And yet we are like Peter. We fail miserably. How can we handle it? How can we handle those failures in our Christian walk? Well, just a few things. Let me share this with you. And we've called this the setting, the scandal, and this part, the swagger. Because I think there was a certain swagger to Peter here. And the swagger was, I'm not going to fail you, Lord. These other guys might, but I'm not going to fail you. And, and, and that's the swagger that was in his life. And so what are some things that we need to take away? First of all, we need to take this away. God is sovereign even in our failures. 
God is sovereign even in our failures. We, you know, back in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, uh, a portion of scripture that talks about this. Jesus says this. He says, Satan has asked to sift you. In fact, let me read it. He says in, in Luke um, chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sh- uh, sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And so listen to me. Even God is sovereign over our failures. God realizes that. When you go back and you study scripture, even in the failures, God is teaching people something. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs, a just man falls seven times, but what does he do? He rises up and he goes again. And that's what Peter did. God was sovereign. God knew he was going to fail. We'll see that in a minute. But what God had prayed for him, and God knew he was going to fail, but God used this to develop Peter. He was using it. John Newton wrote, It's radical and almost frightening thought to see that God is actually as much at work in our worst moments of sin and defeat as he is in our best moments of shining obedience. God is always working. And you say, well, boy, that's really, that's a hard thing to swallow, isn't it? But listen, remember, God was the one who allowed sin into the world. God allowed sin into the world for a purpose. And, and again, he has a purpose in all of that. And even in our failures, even in this failure of Peter, he had a purpose. He was working a perfect plan. And then something I never saw before until when I was preparing this message is that next statement. Listen to this next statement in, in, in Luke, that verse, 31st verse. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Simon, and here's what Jesus prayed, that your faith may not fail. And I stopped there for a minute, and and I thought, man, that your faith may not fail. Why didn't Jesus pray that Peter would not sin? Why didn't he pray? I I started thinking about that. Well, why didn't you just pray, Jesus? I'm going to pray for you, Peter, and you're going to be tempted tonight. And my prayer is that you don't fall and that you don't sin. But here he prays, I don't want your faith to fail. And I think those words are important. I think they're so important. It's an astounding statement to think that's what God prayed for him. Not, not, Not that he wouldn't fall, but what? That his faith would not fall. That his faith would not fall. And the reason I believe that he prayed that is, listen, God knows in this flesh, in this flesh that we live in, we are going to what? We're going to fail. We're going to fail. And here, in our failure there, he has provided a way to us to have forgiveness. He doesn't want us to live even though on occasion we fail and we mess up miserably. He doesn't want us to live in condemnation. He doesn't want us to live in sin and shame and failure. He wants us to live realizing that that sin has been forgiven. And the problem is that sometimes when we sin, man, we allow our faith to fail. 
that we get so discouraged that our faith fails. And he says, listen, you're going to sin tonight, but I don't want it to come to the point where you lose your faith over that. I want you to realize that that's what I died for. That's what I'm going to the cross for. And so you can be forgiven for it. It's, it's not a thing of like, you know, oh, I can just, you know, sin and, and, and confess it and that's it. You know, it says back in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What? God forbid. No way. We should not live like that. But the reality of the flesh is you're going to fail. And so in that failure, don't let it destroy your faith. Realize that your faith isn't built on yourself. It's built on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's trying to get across. I've prayed for you that your faith, God determined, I love this statement here by Johnny Erickson Tata. God has determined to steer what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I love that statement. God is... God has determined to steer what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God doesn't cause us to sin. He allows us to sin. And he uses that even in our lives, as he did with Peter. You know, and and he'll take the time to restore Peter on the beach. Just like three times Peter denied him, three times he'll ask him if he loves him. And he'll restore Peter. And then Peter will go out and Peter will preach. And over 3,000 souls will be saved and baptized and added to the church. And God will use Peter in a great way. In spite of his failures. Why? Because that's what he died for. Christ died for all of your failures. Don't live in the despondency of that. And I really think that's why he prayed that. And listen what else he says. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. In other words, take this failure, turn it around, and strengthen your brothers with them. Take it and use it to be an encouragement to others to share. You know what? I failed. But listen, this is what God has done for my failures. This is what he's done in my life. This is the fact that it's not me. When when Peter stood up and he preached that day and 3,000 people were saved, listen, he could say, this is all about Jesus because I failed and yet he's used me. And he could take it and encourage those around him. Last night, I had the privilege to drive Jimmy, was his name, back down to Water Street Mission. And uh, he came, and uh, Jim Buckner went down and picked him up. And since, since I was going back, I took him back. And uh, Jimmy was an interesting fella. Jimmy just came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And man, did he love to talk about that. He, man, he, from the minute we left the parking lot until we got to Water Street, I don't know if I got two words in. Jimmy just wanted to talk about Jesus. And so, in fact, he told me this. He said, you know, I thought I was coming to a sportsman's banquet tonight. I knew it was at a church, but I just thought it would be about sports. I didn't think it had anything to do with Jesus. And he said, the best part of this is this was all about Jesus tonight. And Jimmy shared with me about his life of drugs and alcohol and his life of, in, of adultery and immorality and all of these things that he had been involved in. But yet he was celebrating. Listen, he said this, two weeks, this two weeks he'd been saved. He said, here's the good news, pastor. He said, all that sin is gone. It's behind me. I don't have to live there anymore. 
And he said, I know it's going to be a struggle. He said, I've only been saved two weeks. He said, two weeks ago, I walked the aisle to church, and I accepted Christ. And he said, listen, this flesh is hard. That's what he said. This flesh works against me hard. But he said, I want to live for Jesus. And there's not one of us in this room, I believe, because we're here today, that don't want to live for Jesus. That like Peter say, listen, I don't want to fail you. There's not one of us that doesn't say, I want to read the word. I, don't, I, I want to pray like I should. I, I want to do these things, but sometimes we fail. But don't let Satan allow you to live in your failure. Live in the victory of Christ. That's what he wants us to do. And that's what he tells him to do. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you. Don't let your failures steal your faith. Don't let your failures steal your faith. Would you put that last slide up that has the statement there? Our sin should always drive us back to the gospel. Listen to this statement. God is capable when he pleases and for his own purpose of giving me the grace to stand and resist temptation. But often he chooses Instead, for his own good purposes, to show me grace through my falls, humbling me and teaching me my desperate need for him. I love that statement because it's in my failures that it teaches me. I can't do this. I need Jesus. I need the gospel every moment. I need to keep coming back to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the forgiveness of sin. I'm not capable in my own strength of living the Christian life. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. And sometimes he allows us to fail so he can work his perfect purposes in our life. But those failures don't make who we are. Because you know what? No matter how many times you fail, here's the good news. You've already been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. When God looks down from heaven and he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son wrapped around you and you have been declared righteous. That's your standing in Christ. That's who you are in Christ. You are righteous. Don't let Satan tell you anything else. You are righteous in Jesus Christ no matter what. And that's something as a Christian to celebrate. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning. That even though we fail you, and sometimes often, that we don't need to live in that failure. We need to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need to live in the fact that you died and you forgave us and you cleansed us and there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, even when we fail you, you don't want our faith to fail. You want our faith to stay strong because our faith isn't in ourself. It is rooted in you, God. And so, Lord, as long as we live until we are totally sanctified and we are exactly right and like you in every way... When we get to heaven like Sam Parrott is right now, Sam Parrott is totally sanctified. Lord, we're in the process of sanctification here, and we look 
forward to that day when either you return or we go to be with you. And Lord, this world is made right. But Father, help us as Christians to live in the gospel, in the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.